listening to Mental Selling, the sales performance podcast, a show from Integrity Solutions. This is a podcast for passionate leaders in sales and customer service who are driven by purpose, not just a paycheck. People who want to create broader and deeper connections with customers and their teams by building trust and mastering the critical mental and emotional sides of sales. You're about to hear a conversation from sales leaders and industry experts about what it takes to translate sales knowledge into sales performance. How to change the sales conversation by putting the focus on building relationships and adding value, removing the blockers that keep salespeople from reaching their potential, creating an inspiring learning environment and coaching culture, and ultimately increasing sales achievement and improving customer loyalty. Ready to rise up to the top of your game? Let's get right into the show. Welcome to Mental Selling. This is your favorite sales podcast. I'm Will Milano with Integrity Solutions. Thanks very much for joining us again from wherever you are and whenever you're listening to this. Company culture, communication, and resilience. These are terms that we all agree factor greatly into attracting, onboarding, and developing successful salespeople. And they're all things that sales leaders will nod and agree are critical aspects of their responsibilities. But how do you go from concept to action? How do you make these things real? And how can you actually measure progress and impact along the way? So that's the focus of mental selling today. And with us to discuss it are two great guests who can help bring this to life for us and give us some great perspectives. With us today are Tina Downing. Tina is Senior Director and Lead of AIS Business Solutions with Russell Investments. Tina's in the St. Louis, Missouri area. And also Scotland Jacobson, who is Global HR Director in charge of Talent Development and Acquisition, Learning and Development, Diversity and Inclusion, HR Operations, and Associate Engagement, also with Russell Investments. So thank you both. Thank you, Tina and Scotland, for being with us today. So we're going to jump right in. Welcome. And, and again, thank you both for joining us today. So I know both of you have great perspectives on this, but Tina, I want to start with you. The idea of company culture, it gets a lot of mentions and it's, it's I don't want to say it's trendy, but it, it's certainly a popular term, but it's also seen as this nebulous, impossible to quantify or do anything about thing. And it will also too often get backburnered probably in the favor of the the urgent of the day. What do you think is its importance today, really? And and how do you see it impacting your industry specifically in financial services and and with sales teams? It's a great question, Will, because, you know, I think a lot of people don't realize that firms always have a culture, whether it's one by design or by default. Right. So a negative culture that gets pushed down to the employees really does breed a toxic environment. Right. And I'll give you an example as I once worked for a firm for a very short period of time that a new sales leader came in and actually had directed other sales leaders that were managing the people, the sales organization to look at the bottom third every single quarter and put them on plan to manage them out. So there was a point that you had top producers that had been top producers for months and months and months and years, and they had one bad quarter, and then all of a sudden they're on plan. So that type of culture breeds. And even when you have a good culture, you know, a senior leadership team that is doing things the right way, trying to motivate people, sometimes it gets stuck. 
in middle management. And what senior leaders have to really make sure of is that they're taking that culture, that vision that they have for the culture they want to create and help mid-level managers think about what does that actually look like day to day as I'm managing frontline employees. And Will, if I can add on to what Tina's saying, where she, she went into the that middle management, that, that, that management role is so important to your culture because the top of the house may be setting excellent strategy, maybe setting excellent you know, foundation for your company. But unless the managers take that to the associates, it can get lost and people need that. We've all heard the famous expression, people don't leave companies, they leave managers. And you know, I've seen a lot of circumstances where people have left a firm because of the manager, not necessarily because of the firm. So you have to really look at how that culture can play out uh, from that general middle management or all management coming through, but also you could have pockets that could impact your culture negatively as well, which is important to look at. Those are great points. And it's, it, I couldn't agree more. The, the role of the managers and, and then also, Tina, what you started out saying, which is companies have cultures, basically whether they like it or not, whether it's delivered or not. So it's one of those things that you really need to take the reins of. Building on what you both have, have been saying and and we're at a time where we're in the face of what many are calling the, the great resignation. Or, you know, there's other names for it. Um, and we all know that with roles like financial services for financial advisors uh, and salespeople, there's tended to be historically more turnover than is typical anyway in those areas. But what's the opportunity you think for companies today if they do focus more deliberately through their leaders and through you know, all the things we're going to talk about, you know, onboarding, training, development, what are the, what's the impact and the opportunity on culture and on developing their salespeople? It's, it's huge to both retain and attract people, Will. Today's associate or today's person out there in the United States or, or really around the globe, they're looking into companies more so than ever before. They're looking at are there people that look like me? So when you think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, do they look like me? They're looking for branding. They're, they're looking for, does, does, does the company have a good reputation? There's a lot of websites out there uh, in social media where people can leave commentaries on companies. And people, people read those comments. People look for what other people say about the firm. They also look for community involvement and sustainability and things like that. There, there's, a, there's a huge piece of that to both attract and retain people because with that great resignation as they're calling it a lot of people might be leaving for another firm simply because of flexibility or they're attracted to the culture of another firm sometimes it could be pay but there's a lot of other factors nowadays that people are looking at and certainly the pandemic has created that flexibility point of you know hey how are my working conditions does it have to be every single day in the office or can i have some sort of hybrid schedule or some sort of different schedule to adapt to my family and company cultures are adapting to that and really have to, and have been forced to, which I think has been an interesting and good evolution. Well, I was just going to say that um, what you were talking about around company values and, and what they stand for is more important today than ever in attracting the right talent, especially salespeople who are going to represent your brand out in the customer facing standpoint, right? Yeah, and companies that have value segments. Uh, I know of a real estate company, an online real estate company, a national company based here in Seattle. Their values are so 
easily repeatable that all the associates know them. It's threaded through. And so when they're recruiting or when they're looking out of branding or retaining their associates, they can repeat those values and those values are known. So also companies that have values that are that are out there and that are easily consumable and repeatable so everybody can get around and understand what they mean. And then making sure that the leaders or really everybody in the company are held accountable to those values as well and held yeah. against that. Tina, I want to get back to your point. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, that's great. I think retention also has to be a priority for the firm. And I think too many leaders think, okay, I have people leaving and that's okay. You know, people move on, they move on for various reasons and it's just part of the process, right? And I may even have the opportunity to reduce cost, right? To hire someone in at a lower wage. But I don't think that firm leaders think enough about what it actually takes and what cost it takes and resources that it takes to constantly get people up to speed on their culture and their in their firms and their products and the sales process that they use and all the resources that a salesperson needs to actually grow the business you know and how much time it actually takes to build client relationships over time that is a you know two year time frame just to really scratch the surface on that. And if you're constantly having turnover, it comes at a great cost to the firm in many many ways. And customers will feel it too, right? They're they're they see when companies have high levels of turnover, and it makes them nervous and probably less likely to stick around themselves. If someone has three different client reps over a two year period, that's often not going to look very good, and the clients is going to be uncomfortable. Yeah, I. I've had that happen before where um, companies that have sold to me, you know, every time they reach out to me, they'll say, oh, I'm so-and-so, your, your account manager. And it's different from the person that was six months ago and six months before that. And yeah, it, it sends a, a message, doesn't it? And if I could yeah. dive into that retention point as well, in that when you think of retaining your top performers, one of the you know, the number one reason people leave often, you know, we mentioned maybe a bad manager, but but it could also be just career opportunity. It's not always more money, but people want to learn and grow. And so a lot of times you, you can't necessarily constantly promote someone because there's, there's only going to be so many options there, but there's ways to expand them with, hey, we'd like you to mentor or take on projects or things like that. You constantly want to be creative with the, the development of your top performers who are the most thirsty for that as well. They want to keep growing. That's why they're as good as they are. So you've got to keep instituting that. And that can also, if, if other people find out, wow, you've got this great leadership program, or you've got various things that you're offering top performers, that can also, in addition to a retention strategy, be an attraction strategy. Well, people also want to know that they're important to the firm and that the firm's willing to fight for their loyalty. Right. I mean, people can be very, very loyal, but if you don't feel like your firm is loyal to you and your development and your progression, they'll go somewhere that can. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That segues into the next thing I wanted to talk about. You talk about how people want to feel valued, right? They want to feel valued, that they're important, that they matter, um, how what they're doing matters to the organization day to day, and they want to feel appreciated. And, and Scotland, I've, I've heard you talk about this before. Um, about how communication from leaders really sets the tone for company culture and, and related to that being much more things like being much more transparent. Right. And so salespeople, just like customers do, they seem to be wanting more humanity 
and emotional intelligence and transparency from their leaders than, than they ever have before. What do you think this looks like in, in practical terms? And, and what should sales leaders themselves keep in mind about communication? Well, I think definitely that transparency word is is knocked around a lot. And yes, they do want people to be more transparent, but there's always going to be a balance. So it's a transparency, both on the business side of things that they want sales leaders or leaders in general to be able to clearly state, this is, you know, this is the strategy. These are the goals. These are the objectives. This is what we're going for and giving them the measurables around that and help them translate to that's a big part of that communication process is a company could say, hey, here, here's our big strategy. And then there's there, there's the person taking uh, client calls that just started six months ago that doesn't understand how their goals, you know, map up atop. So you got to do that cascade and connection impact um, from that transparency and constantly talk about it. The other side of that transparency is they want leaders to be human. You know, there's some leaders that, you know, they say they're in the ivory tower or something like that. You, you want leaders to be able to interact with you to share a bit about their personal life and who they are and their own journey. You want someone who will connect with the associates. It's not just, you know, they would never go to lunch with all the admins or something because that might be a really great thing to build connections. But the word I'd use on both that business and personal side is balance. You don't want to go too far. You can be overly personal and you can be way too over detailed with with the business connection because you got to let give people enough to feel connected to you. But, you know, we say you don't necessarily have to be your best friend. And I think that big part of the communication, too, is understanding you're talking to a lot of different types of people. So you have to adapt your communication to your audience, to your individuals. If you're speaking to everybody, put all those different people in there. Some people love you being direct, some people will be very fearful. However, a foundation of any solid culture, going back to the, the culture point with that communication, is feedback. You have to have a culture that welcomes and understands that feedback, both positive and constructive, is so important. And you have to just figure out how to get people to be able to accept and deliver feedback in different ways so people hear you, because that's only going to make everybody and the company better. Well, I think that, I mean, you made a lot of great points, right? Feedback is one of the key components and feedback has to happen daily. It can't be something that a situation happens and then you wait for two months when you have their quarterly, you know, check-in for their review and all of a sudden bring up situations because no one remembers what happens day to day. So that day-to-day feedback is key, but understanding the communication style of who you're actually giving that feedback to. And also, as you're pushing down messaging throughout an organization, yes, you have every different perspective out there within your employee organization, but also helping them understand not just transparency, but the why behind what you do and how you frame those messages is equally as important. Everything from your body language to the words that you use of how you create this inclusive environment that people are open to hear even negative messaging and a negative um, direction in their own mind, as long as there's a real rationale around it. That's where I think the disconnect is, was when employees don't understand the rationale of and the difficulty of the decision senior leadership has to make. And you, and you touched on some aspects of, you know, coaching's a, a big term out there, right? And, and, and coaching's another thing that 
to be honest, um, gets a lot of lip service from the bar by sales leaders. But you touched on things like feedback and consistency and, and why, you know, the why of what they're doing. And that's really, those are really foundational aspects of coaching, right? Versus the quarterly check-in. Those are important, but those are very task related. Those are tactical. They're going through to-do lists. And that's, that's not coaching. That's an entirely different aspect of, of a leader's responsibility. Tina, I wanted to also building on, on what we're talking about here around, around communication and, and uh, transparency. Has internal communication become even more important since so many teams and, and employees are now fully remote? And how have you dealt with that? Absolutely. It's become more important and even more difficult, right? Because when you can sit you know, with someone eye to eye and watch their body language and the tone of their voice and the pace of their voice, and you can tell when you're in front of someone whether they're really stressed out or not. Right. So what we tend to do is we tend to actually judge each other by some sort of action that's happened and and some behavior that you've actually witnessed. But we don't take the time to actually understand why that behavior actually happened. Right. We know even if you know the behavioral styles of the people that actually work with you and that you manage, it's still important to understand why that behavior is happening that way. Right. And taking that extra step to understand that and taking time, you know, some of the ways that, that my team has dealt with this remote, you know, stuff is we always talk to each other on camera for one. Right. But even how you talk on camera matters, because if you're not looking in the camera, it makes it look like that you're not paying attention. Right. And so we do a lot of work with advisors and in our own team. The other thing we have to do as we're working remotely is take time to be together as a team. You know, we have you know a call every month that we don't talk about any business. We just talk about what's going on in our lives. You know, we do calls that we're able to share expertise and passions with each other. For example, I did one on mental resilience and one of our other ones did something on, on you know, working out and making sure they're staying healthy when you're, you're working from home. You know, one actually, you know, we, we've spent all this time getting to know each other and the things that we care about and taking time to celebrate all the things that we're actually doing right. Yeah, it's important to measure and, and celebrate the the. The progress along the way, right? Not just waiting for the for the the finish line. You know, I think one of the one of the benefits, if you can say that there's a benefit in the pandemic, is is what Tina's talking about. I think in a way, people got to know each other better and work together more. I mean, one of my favorite things, you know, I've had instances where I'm on a live webcast and and someone's son walked in the room and they're really embarrassed. I think it's great. I think it's human seeing people's pets back there. It's, it's like, look, we're all normal. And, you know, it's even great when you see some of our senior leaders and they're sitting there and they've got some fun trinket behind them. They're like, oh, okay. They're just like me. And I think that communication too, one of the things that our firm, our associates really appreciated, and it came out in year-end surveys, when the pandemic first happened in 2020, we made an extra push to almost over-communicate. And that communication was not only, here's what's going on, and here's what we're doing, but it was also, it's okay. We did a whole series of uh, videos called the Work From Home Show. And, you know, we just talked about like, hey, it's, it's okay to take a break, go make lunch, go for a walk in the middle of the day. You know, there's not a camera on you the whole time. And just like you would in the office, go take a break. You want to do the same thing at home. Mm -hmm. 
And I had a lot of emails from associates after we did some of these sessions just saying, I was so stressed to even get up and go use the restroom at home and you made it okay. So thank you. So, so there's that communication too, of letting people know, here's, here's the business, here's what we're doing, but also, you know what, we get your situation, everybody's different and it's okay. And that made people feel better and in, in a way work even harder for what we were doing. Exactly. And I think there's always been this persona around working from home and we're not as productive and it's, you know, how can we keep the business going? But being able to give employees clear expectations of what's expected, giving them time and space to do the things some were teaching their kids at school, you know, for some time, giving them time and space to be able to do the things they need to do for themselves personally, but also letting them understand what are the expectations and what are the timelines that things need to happen? And if you're unable to do it, the expectation that you come to me and you ask for help. Which, right? which goes back to the feedback thing you talked about earlier, right? That okay. consistent feedback. There should be, you get to those quarterly reviews or some companies have reviews every six months. There should be no, no surprises in those discussions, right? Yep. Exactly. What it also goes back to, you know, as much as we've all gotten used to remote, as people start to return to office as it's called and people see each other face to face and are able to have conversations and and read body language. People are, I'm seeing people be so excited about, Oh my gosh, I'm in front of you again. And this is almost an easier conversation because I can read more or react more to things and people can read each other too, which I think is really important. So there's, there's that balance between the two that I think we learned a lot over the last couple of years about how to communicate and interact with your associates and our clients in a way that's adaptable and flexible and and you can do both really is is what we're coming out of this with and like you said we're we're approaching that getting into that time where it's it's a bit of both right people are still mainly remote but they're starting to come back together maybe they're in the office just for a couple of days they've traveled or maybe they're getting back once twice a week and there is that balance and people are getting used to seeing each other again right and and especially for salespeople that are typically more remote than others. You said, you know, that was the, the previous episode of, of mental selling was was all about the the blurred lines between what used to be quote field sales versus inside sales. And you know, all, all salespeople are selling virtually now, right? And they're all working from home. Being conscious of a lot of the things that you're talking about with with culture and communication can really keep them engaged. And that was the other thing I wanted to to build on, which is are there signs that when somebody's remote, are there signs that you can watch out for, especially with a salesperson who's, you know, they're, they deal with a lot of ebbs and flows, right? A lot of wins and losses, a lot of good days and bad days. Are there signs you can watch out for when someone might start becoming disconnected or, or isolated? And, and, and what can the, the sales leader be doing to help bring that person back into the fold? Well, I, I think that is one of the biggest advantages to doing some sort of behavioral assessment for the people that you work with, you know, or even a motivator's assessment. Because if you have someone that is naturally an outgoing person, you know, that loves to work in teams, that loves, you know, to, you know, to work on projects or loves to get into the details. If you see that they're exhibiting other behaviors there that are contrary to that, you know, if you have someone that's typically outgoing, that's now not contributing on a team call all of a sudden that gets quiet, that's a warning sign, right? And, and then, you know, because you know that that's who they are naturally, 
and you know they're adapting for some reason and how do you actually dig into the why of that behavior and understand exactly what's going on that is the beauty body language is also one of the best telltale signs you know once i get to know someone really well i start really watching their body language and you can pick on up on little ticks you know that happen when something's going on just like a salesperson would try to do those things with customers right exactly it's the yeah. same process yeah, yeah. I mean, we did that back in the, in the life environment. I, I've taken, you know, working with a lot of our advisory clients going to the office and, you know, we just go around and teach people how to interact with, you know, are people resonating with what you're telling them? Are you asking enough questions? Are you engaged? And th- that just applies here in this situation with the question you're asking well. And I also think that camera becomes really interesting where you think about someone who's always on camera because they're very social um, and want to see people because that's important to them. And suddenly they're not turning on their camera as much, you know, that can be a sign. I think with all of our electronic communications, email and things like that, the timing of those messages, Hmm, this person used to start at seven 30. Now they're not starting to email till 10 what's going mm, on. Right. Um, there could be interesting signs of, of exhaustion or, or things like that, that you'd want to look for as well. Yeah. Exactly. And the leader just has to be, it's part of his or her role, right? To be in tune with those things and be overtly aware and, and just, you know, exhibit that emotional intelligence as we call it, right? Yeah. When it's interesting too, well, we, we're a global company. So we've always had various remote lines of managers. Um, in, in fact, I would say probably a lot of our managers have not always had their team in the same place. So it's nothing new to us, but I think this more extreme environment has really made people realize, oh, hey, you know what? We were already doing this and we were pretty good at it. Let's let's turn it up a notch so that we can make it work more broadly. What do you, th- what do you think is the impact that, that companies might not realize that some of the things we're talking about, culture, very clear communication, you know, by extension, some of the behavior styles related things that you were talking about that, that leaders need to be in tune with as far as their people. But what's the, the impact that, um, that this can have not only just on the whole aspect of attracting and engaging each other, but with customers? How do you, how do you help people that are dealing remotely, especially salespeople, right? With customers to use some of these tools to build rapport with them and, and impact things like customer retention. Well, from a customer standpoint, I think, you know, paying attention and really listening to what their priorities are, you know, too often do we go in to make a sale to a client and we have our own agenda of what we want to sell to them, right? And sometimes it means that we have to take a step back and listen, because the more you listen, the more you can start to understand their communication style, whether they, you know, make emotional decisions, you know, when they're making, you know, decisions about what they're going to buy, you know, or if it's more cognitive decisions, you know, what is the empirical evidence that you have to show me? Right? And as you can overlay those from a sales standpoint, you know, it, it can really show the client that you truly do understand them and then confirming what those needs are before you make any recommendations and tying recommendations to the conversation that you just had. You know, too many times we take the time to do discovery and then just start with our process, our normal sales process, instead of actually breaking down our sales process to go the direction the client needs us to go to make sure that we're addressing their priorities. 
from an employee standpoint and um, as it relates to in, in retention here, mm-hmm. people want more than just a job today. They want something that fulfills them. And we can use these things that we learn about behaviors and motivators to be able to get to what they need as well. And it is possible to align those things, no matter what their role is in the firm. And I think the virtual world has also, in a way, positively impacted the customer because in our industry, you know, let's go way back in time. Everybody's heard the the steak and whiskey wholesaling, or I'm just going to do the branch visit and go knock on everybody's doors. Being virtual and having all this video technology that we have now when you think about the sales process, as Tina identified, you know, you've got to do some discovery first. What are your needs? And then get your um, pieces together to come back and demonstrate what you have to offer that, that you think fits their needs. And instead of like constantly traveling out there or making appointments, you could do shorter bursts of, hey, just give me 15 minutes. Let me do this. Then I'll come back to you a couple days. And you can still interact face-to-face to really have that engagement, but you can piece it out And then it almost becomes more convenient. And in some ways, you might be talking to your clients more as you go through because you're not limited by the I am here in your city at this time. Um, So that's been a way I think that there's been an advantage to this virtual piece. And then when it comes time for, hey, you know what, let's get all the, you know, your clients together to come and do a presentation, then I'm going to fly out and be in person. And and those in-person pieces become almost an extra special part of the sales process. Um, and, and you you can utilize both. And then, of course, you know, there's there's still the phone call. I, I know a lot of the the newer generation may forgot that that you can also just talk on the phone, but that that's an option too. <laughs> has that been, how much of a stretch has that been to help over the last couple of years? Because what you're talking about is really sort of accelerating trends that were happening, right, over the last several years. But how much of a stretch has it been to really help people adapt to what you're saying or in that sort of purely remote selling environment? Has it been difficult? I think it's more difficult a lot of times for the salesperson than it is the client because the clients are busy, right? And being able to take time out of their day to go and meet with someone, you know, you make your, you know, your sales presentation to them and they go back and they talk to their, their family, you know, you can shorten that sales cycle by a, a huge amount. So, you know, not everybody wants that face-to-face contact. You know, they like being able to, you know, take their notes, you know, say I want to talk to my, you know, my husband, you know, do whatever. And you know, they like that option of not having to be right there in front of you and the pressure that that actually brings to them as well. And I think the accessibility to information on top of that is really important, too, with with all the, the websites or virtual tools that you can provide people to, all right, going with that behavior styles, there's some people that like, let me go read, let me go absorb it myself, let me take my own time with it, and then come back to you. And instead of us, you know, you go way back in time, like, let me send you this big prospectus or something like that. It's look here on the website, and people have gotten more savvy with creating soundbite videos. Um, You think of the way people learn, some people want to listen, some people want to watch, some people want to read, we can provide all these in one place to get people to absorb information. And I also think, you know, preparation, one of the things that our firm did well is we were already stepping into more virtual wholesaling. We were also, our our technology team had been done disaster recovery prep for years. So when everything happened, 
we almost had a competitive advantage of getting ahead of the game because we had some practice at doing this Mm -hmm. um, to get there. Like Tina said, it's still harder for the salesperson to kind of get used to it. But the clients, you know, at first were like, what's going on? And they adapted pretty, pretty fast. It was pretty amazing. They're like, oh, this is, this is kind of great. I can suddenly also access to people. Um, that's another great advantage too. Instead of like my portfolio manager or my head of sales or something like that, instead of flying them there, Hey, let's get on the call for 10 minutes with them to answer your questions. I mean, what a great accessibility that this has provided as well. There's a lot of efficiencies built in there. Right. And like you were saying, we don't have to schedule this meeting and get people on planes three, four, six weeks from now. Like, Hey, let's get together for 15 minutes on a, on a video chat like this and and knock it out tomorrow or, or this afternoon or whatever it might be. And like you said, the the information, whether it's information that's at the the customer's fingertips already before they even engage with the salesperson or things that the salesperson can provide in advance, it makes those calls or those video chats a lot more efficient because you're doing you can skip the whole show and tell thing, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And I'm I'm betting our CEO and our CIO probably met with more clients in the last two years, you know, on average than they they had when they had to do more in-person stuff. The one thing that is important in that kind of scenario is to be prepared, right? And to come in with a framework. When you're doing a call like this, it's very difficult to wing it and make the call go the way you want it to. So coming in with letting the the client know what the expectation is and understanding what they would like to get out of the call before it even happens. You know, we teach a, what we call the 3P process, right? Is first talking about the perspective of what's going on in the world and all of that news and what's news and what's noise and how it actually affects them. Mm-hmm. The second is revisiting priorities, not just once a year, not just when you start with the client, but, but, thinking about their priorities at that given time because they're making major family decisions. And we know that we are going through the greatest reassessment of personal priorities than we ever have, you know, in the 30 years that I've been in the business. And then it's the process and the product is then, you know, what is it that we've recommended before that actually is working here? And what are the things we have to keep an eye on based on your priorities and the perspective of what's going on and what it actually means to you and your family. That's such a good good perspective of not skipping ahead to the, the product piece of it, right? And really getting a sense of their priorities and, and all that. It's, um, it's, it's how you really in garner trust, right? By, by taking the time to do that advanced prep and, and understand their priorities and asking those questions. Tina, I want to ask you something that I know you have a real passion about. There's... A lot of ebbs and flows, we talked about this earlier, ups and downs as a salesperson and, and resilience is one of those terms like culture, like communication that everybody says is important. But again, it's hard to get your, your arms around. Um, and it's something that both salespeople, you know, financial advisors like you have and sales leaders need to have. And related to that, there's a lot of um, you can read a lot in the news about sales burnout becoming a very real problem today. And we talked about some of the ways earlier about how do you um, maybe head off some of that at the, at the past and understand when somebody's becoming more disconnected, but how can organizations, how do you think it's, it's best done through training and development to create more quote unquote resilient salespeople that are able, 
uh, sales teams that are able to find that balance? How do, how do you do that? Well, it's a good question because, you know, Scotland and I actually literally just did a call for our entire firm around this, you know, around emotional and mental resilience and, and what it actually means. But this is really pick and shovel work because you can give employees a framework on how to think about resilience and how to begin to recognize when that resilience might not be there. But, you know, I, I'll give you an example. I even trained my own team on what the concepts are on mental resilience, but it was important to reinforce it every single day with interactions with them. So we made an agreement as a team as we found ourselves making assumptions about things that were said or things that we saw or you know, things that happened, or we started taking things too personally, you know, whether it related to feedback that was given in a good way or a bad way, or someone treated us a certain way, or we weren't impeccable with our own word and making sure that really thoughtful about what we say, or even when we got beaten down and we thought that, you know, well, we're not good enough, we're not smart enough to actually do this. We actually agreed as a team to hold each other accountable to what we saw and heard with each other. And now we really work to seek a lot of understanding before we react to things, which includes not only how we deal with others, but also how we work through our own self-talk, right? Yeah. Because we tend to get in our own heads and giving someone a framework that they can fall back on to say, is this true about what I'm going through right now? And if it is, how can I actually work through it? And there's a there's a lot on, on top of that. I, it's one of those things you can't just say, you know, hey, everybody, here's a training on resilience and we're done. It's just just like, you know, I've done a lot of sales training for our, our salespeople. And I tell the manager, unless you coach to this, unless you keep it alive and have that iterative element to it, it it's, it's not going to work. And it's the same thing with resilience. We have started to offer a lot more tools or webcasts or things like that on resilience. Like Tina said, there's tools, there's permissions, but it's that continued conversation and check in with people about it because there's a lot of systems and, and it can be as simple as, you know, take a break or something like that or recognize to do a self-assessment, I think is a big thing with resilience. The word grit is used quite a lot um, to think, think about that grit and how to push forward through those things. But it's also okay to say, you know what, I, I need to take a break today. You, you know, maybe you can't do that if you have a big sales pitch or something like that. But that communication constantly between manager and associate to make sure that that resilience can keep going in the way that works for them, because there's not one path to it, is so key yeah. uh, to, to making a resilient culture, really overall, or a team culture. And the fact that Tina is doing that with our whole team, and there's that open dialogue, there's that feedback again. And I think sometimes you go back to communication. Well, a lot of times people just need to vent, and that makes them feel better and reset. And that can be part of resilience as well. So allow those conversations that may not have a direct business purpose, but spending 10 minutes with someone to make them, okay, I feel better. Now I can get on with it. can go a long way. Just like with, with your friends or, or, or with spouses, right? Sometimes they just want to be heard. They don't want you yep. to have the, have the answers or fix it for them. They just yep. want to, they just want to vent. And yep. I, and, and the, one of the points that you made that I, I really liked was around the, you know, that it, you're not checking a box, right? It doesn't, it doesn't go away. It's one of those constant feedback loops. It's one of those things that always has to be nurtured and to create resilient people through coaching, feedback, 
communication, it's it's got to be ongoing. It's it's never going. You're never going to hit the finish line, right? Use the word will always building. We we did a call planning a resilience event recently, and and someone literally asked, "What if I can never get to resilience?" And the answer to that was is you're always building resilience. It's like the house is never done. You're going to yes. constantly add rooms to it. Um, and you just got to constantly build. And you have to get used to as you're communicating with others or someone calls you and you think they're venting, you know, to really define with them, ask the question, you know, are you calling to vent or do you want my help with something to fix something? Right. Because I tend to be a fixer myself, and I, li- I like to try to jump in and solve the problem for them. And then when they don't listen to me, then I'm like, okay, then why did you ask my opinion? And sometimes they want to vent. So now I've gotten really good at, because I am directive in that way, to say, you know, is this, you know, you're just blowing off steam here, or, or would you like my help with something here? Yeah. And you go back to, to trust with your clients and so forth, too. This works with your clients, too. Your clients need to be okay. resilient. Your customers do it. And they might need to vent. And if they have a trusting relationship with you and can feel comfortable, like, okay, this has just been a challenging day. Can I talk about this for five minutes before you talk about whatever we're going to talk about? That just builds a better relationship going forward as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that 100% that it, it's the same with between the salesperson and customers, just like it is within the... Uh, internally, um, Scotland. In, based on in in your role, what would you say are the biggest intangibles, intangible traits that you look for when recruiting new advisors or salespeople, and which ones do you think can most be developed once you get them in the door? You know, the, it, it, it's an interesting question to reflect on because there's always a lot of studies of why is this person or this salesperson so far more successful than others. Um, And as you're you're looking for things earlier, you mentioned loyalty. And I think as you're hiring someone or looking to bring someone into the team, it's, it's, it's somewhat intangible. Like how loyal will you be to our brand, to our firm? But those people that are really can go farther. And I think when you think about, you know, one of integrity selling's principles is, a belief in product. And I think that is so key. How you like, will you believe in our products? Do you understand what we're doing? Do you buy into it? Those are intangibles that are hard to look for. And I think you have to ask the behavior based type interview questions to have them give examples and so forth. But in fact, I just gave a referral to a formal former employee to, to another um, company. And I, and I reflected on this particular person and I thought they were really loyal and that made them so successful. And that just really resonated with the new employer um, as well. Yeah. You know, when I look at, at hiring employees or even the management of my existing employees, I first have to consider for myself, what is it that I'm looking for and someone that I think can be successful and what does the firm need, right? So the two things, what does the team need? What does the firm need? And then what are my expectations? And I'm a big framework person. So, you know, it really is attitude. You know, that loyalty goes to the attitude. I think, Scotland, you've talked about being hungry, you know, Mm -hmm. to actually do more. You know, that belief in products as part of attitude and aptitude. You know, do they have this drive for constant learning is important to me. And agility. How can they actually you know, pivot if they need to. Do they get stuck when something gets overwhelming and when they actually move, you know, with where the business model is going? Activity, 
Now, are they focused on what are the most productive activities over time? And how do they actually prioritize? And then the last one is accountability. You know, are you a person that takes ownership of what your role is and even taking your role to that next level? So I look at all of it. You know, again, I'm big on framework. So, yeah. you know, if you think about attitude, aptitude, agility, accountability, and activity, all of those things are part of ongoing you know, communication and management of employees, but also really defines what I'm looking for. So no one's surprised once I hire them, they know exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah, and things like uh, things like attitude and accountability that factors into uh, the coaching aspect, mm-hmm. right? Because you want your leaders to be committed to coaching, but you've got to hire people that you know are receptive to it. And so, oh yeah, exactly. coachability is key. Right. Attitudes a multiplier. I always like the word fire, and I think it's also you, you know kind of going back to that company culture. Even it all ties together. You can think of an x x y axis of performance and behavior. Um, are you able to determine they'll be a high performer and have strong behavior? Because you could have a high performer with bad behavior, not good. You could have the reverse. Oh, this person's just, they're great, but they don't perform well. So you got to have that balance. And it's hard to sometimes intangibly measure both of those too when you're looking at candidates. And a lot lot of what we're talking about with the, the loyalty goes both ways though too, right? Because you're okay. you're portraying yourself as a brand that is fully vested in developing and, and making people successful. Mm-hmm. When when salespeople and financial advisors in your case join organizations, they they want to know that the company is fully invested in them, right? So it's so it's a, a reciprocal relationship there around loyalty. Yeah, go back to Tina's example from the very beginning about the person that was always putting one third per quarter on the watch list. You know, that's not loyalty to the people. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's pretty hardcore. And that's not building loyalty on the staff either. It created a lot of hidden agendas and, you know, and dysfunction. Mm-hmm. It's too bad. But there still has to be accountability. I think that's a big word on both sides for both. Um, I, I think it's accountability for the leaders and the managers. I think it's accountability for the associate and accountability on the customer's part too. Um, all three of those have to play a role. They, they all have to step forward and work together and no one can sit back and watch the other two go. They all have to be, be in there to make Insane. it work. Yeah, absolutely. One of the last things I wanted to, to touch on with both of you is there's a, a lot of research around how organizations that embrace more diversity and inclusivity are creating not only higher performing teams, but they're, they're strengthening their, their bonds with, with customers. And just like some of the other things we've talked about before, the less, the best laid plans of leaders can be to nod their heads vigorously about, yeah, we want to develop and be more diverse and inclusive, but they have a hard time actually doing it. And, and oftentimes you know, they'll, they'll, they'll talk about it. And then a year later, you get everybody into the room and everybody looks like each other and everybody comes from the same background and all those things. What do you see that companies should be doing to help sales leaders make more, make diversity, equity, inclusion more overt and actually happen versus just as being a talking point? I think Companies and, and people and associates and employees need to realize that diversity, equity, and inclusion is not one person's job or the leader, leadership's job. It's everybody's job. Mm-hmm. You have to, you have to institute policies and culture that will, will, will 
um, bring that forward. But you also have to recognize it's it's not just the chief diversity officer who's going to make the change. It's you as the hiring manager. When you are working with your recruiter, don't sit back and wait for them to bring you candidates. Start looking in your network. Start looking in different networks. Start start looking in new places that you may never look before, and you'll be surprised what you can find. Everybody should be looking at, at the policies we have. Are there biases in, in those policies that are preventing us from really creating a more diverse environment? It's hearing the voices. It's it's asking for people to come to the table. And if they're at the table and they're still not speaking up, ask them to speak up. Yeah. It's everybody's job to do that. You've got to create the structure that welcomes it. You've got to tra- create the, the goals that push it forward. But everybody has to understand that all of us need to play our part in creating a more diverse environment. And, you know, diversity, equity, inclusion, it, it it's a huge landscape of what that means. I think we get targeted on one particular population and changing that, but it's also, you know, beyond race and ethnicity and gender and LGBT. Mm -hmm. uh, It's about diversity of thought and thinking it differently. And if you bring all these different experiences together, you're going to have better ideas, create better products, serve your clients better because you're listening to so many more voices rather than just one. Yeah. I agree with that. I, I think that what you said is right on, Scotland, about people tend to think about diversity saying, I need to hire this kind of person, yeah. right? And they, they put the box very, very small instead of thinking about that diversity of thought, that diversity of background or values and beliefs or how we grew up or where we grew up in the environment we live in today, you know, the lifestyle that we actually have chosen, the expertise that we bring to the table and the experience and the education we bring. All of those things are part of creating a diverse environment, right? And yeah. thinking about it as a benefit and what it actually brings to the team instead of thinking this is something I have to do because someone up in diversity and inclusion told me I had to. And affinity bias is a huge thing that gets in people's way because you're always, you know, with affinity bias, you're always seeking out like minds or like people. Um, I look at a resume. They went to my university. Oh, I want to consider them. But it's even think about who you're reaching out to, to, you know, who's in your inner circle that's, that's in your ear and take a look at that. And maybe you need to change that. Ask, you know, reach out and be aware of your affinity bias and get some different voices. Anytime I do something, I am reaching across levels and genders and ethnicities and everything to get opinions. And I form better decisions based on that. I love what both of you said. And like you said, it's not about checking some box, but you're trying to develop this diversity of thought in service of your customers, right? Mm-hmm. And, and your customers are looking at you in this context, not from the standpoint of, of checking a box. They might be looking at you and how you're, how you look as an, as an organization, but they want that, that, um, deeper breadth of, of thought and perspective that can only come with having a more diverse and inclusive organization, sales team, et cetera. And Will, I would say clients and prospects aren't just looking for it. They're demanding it. Right. They won't do business unless they see it. And don't you think don't you think companies are underestimating that? How many customers might be deciding to go elsewhere based on what they're seeing or I should say what they're not seeing? I think there's a huge underestimation there. Yeah. Um, the the various, you know, RFPs that I look at and the questions that they're asking about us, they want to know. 
they, they, they don't want to lick under the hood. They want to crawl in the engine yeah. and they want to make sure that what you built is as diverse and, and powerful as possible. Well, this has been a, a tremendous discussion. We could we could probably keep going for another hour, but I want to be conscious of, of both of your times. Um, I typically like to end the discussions with guests with um, a couple of more personal questions because I think these these are helpful in uncovering a bit more about about each of you. Um, I think in the interest of time, we'll just ask two each really quickly. And one of the ones I always like to ask is. Um, so, Scotland, you're in Seattle, and mm-hmm. Tina, you're in the St. Louis area. Other than where you live today, what's a city or region that you would most want to live in, and why? I would say London. Um, yeah, I've gotten to one. visit London a, a lot, and it's just, you know, go back to diversity, the diversity of the city, what they offer. It's no matter which way you turn, which nook and cranny you look into, it's exciting, and I just... I just think London is amazing and I I would love to live there if I had the opportunity to do so. And mine's much more broad. You know, you just give me a beach in warm weather and I can live there. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Well, that does open it up a lot broader for you, but that's, that's a good choice too. And Scotland, London's one of my absolute favorite cities. I've been fortunate enough to be, be too many times. So um, I agree hundred percent. It's a very, it's a great place. Um, for each of you, if you didn't get into the careers that you have now, you're both extremely successful uh, and with a great organization with Russell Investments. But if you didn't, if you weren't in the careers you're in now, what's something totally unrelated that you think you might have have done otherwise? Well, Scotland's is a lot more fun than mine, so I'll start with mine. We can wrap up with his because this is a lot more fun. But but for me, I would actually be in the elder care industry. Really? I'm so passionate oh. about you know, where our, our older generation is and if they have enough money to live their life with dignity, you know, and, you know, long-term health care is the concern, you know, who's taking care of our, you know, older generation. And I'm afraid they all underestimate what it takes to actually survive. That's a great perspective. Yeah. My, I personally, I, I just had a, a neighbor that we were very good friends with who passed away last week, who was 99 and a half. And, and what you're talking about, about how he was treated in his final years is, is so important. That's, mm-hmm. it's a great perspective to keep in mind. Scotland, what about you? I, I feel frivolous with my answer. Tina <laughs> talks about that. I just feel like I'm a horrible uh, person, but, but I will take the more fantastical approach that um, I, I, I used to be, I'm a little more creaky now and you may not notice it by looking at me, but I used to be an excellent dancer and I used to do a lot of choreography. And I think that had I done the proper training through my youth, um, I probably could have been a backup stage or a backup dancer on stage for a, a, you know, a musician or concert tour or something like that. I, I think I would have been pretty good at that. I I would have had to do the training, but that, that would be my more frivolous answer, but really I'm going to go work with Tina and elder care because that's way more important. (laughs) And Gladys Knight would have been happy to have you. So we're going to wrap up again. I want to thank both of you, uh, to Tina Downing and, and Scotland Jacobson of Russell Investments. Uh, you can find for our listeners, you can find both Tina and Scotland on LinkedIn. Uh, if you either want to want to follow or connect with them, um, please don't forget that all of our episodes of mental selling can be found wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at integrity solutions.com. Please be sure that you're subscribed, uh, tell a friend. 
leave us a review or a rating. We love to get your feedback. Thank you to everyone again for listening today from wherever you are. We hope you've taken some really good nuggets away from this discussion with Tina and Scotland, and we look forward to having you join us again next time. So thank you again and make it a great day. You've been listening to Mental Selling, an integrity solutions podcast. Stay in touch with us by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast player and following us on LinkedIn and Twitter. Please give us a rating, leave a comment and share episodes you love. That helps us keep empowering sales and service leaders to master the mental side of selling. Until next time, let's go out and create amazing customer experiences.